Hey guys, good evening. This is our last class. I'm sad. Very much. Well, hey, I have good news. We we were going to go straight into our next class, which was going to be apologetics. Um, but we're going to take a couple of weeks off, give you guys a break, give us a break, and really promote what our next class is going to be for summer, which is, uh, it's not going to be called this, but I'm going to use the technical term, which is eschatology. Uh, eschatology is the study of end times. So it's going to be um, prophetically based um, uh, and, and apocalyptically based more specifically. Those are two different genres, but Basically, what we're talking about is we're, we're going to be teaching on the end times, uh, and so that's going to be the next class. Pastor Phil promises that he's going to get a book that's an easy-er read, um, so it shouldn't be anything too crazy, no 300-page uh, workbook to go through, and it'll be probably closer to 100 pages. So, um, yes? Not yet. We, we'll, we're going to save that class too. We'll, we will revisit that at some point uh, because it's huge. I mean, it's the defense of the faith. And so we want to make sure that um, that we are equipping you guys. Um, if it was reflecting that there was going to be an apologetics course next, then no, that's, that's correct. Yeah. It's said. <laughs> We'll send out another email this week then, um, letting letting people know. So the next class is going to start up on July 7th, and then it's going to run through, I believe it's August 14th. Uh, July 7th, yeah. Um, so we're going to take June off, give you guys a little summer break. Um, and, and then we're just going to run that one course for summer, and then at the end of that, there's going to be a retreat probably that very that very weekend that the class ends um so i think that the dates for that would be like august 14th and that retreat i'm really excited about so i'll put a little plug in your ear for it now um it's going to be called a timeless retreat and so what that is basically is uh, clocks will not exist on this retreat that means that you will wake up when your body tells you to wake up or when the Lord wakes you up. That means you're going to go to sleep when your body needs to sleep, whether that's in the middle of the day or it's at nine at night or 2 a.m. Um, or when the Lord calls you to sleep. Uh, you're going to eat when you feel led to eat. You're going to read your Bible when you feel led to read and you're going to pray when you feel led to pray. You're going to sing when you feel led to sing and dance when you feel led to dance. And the point of doing a timeless retreat to, to not have clocks is just for there to be no constraint and no routine that locks us in. It's to really break away from what we're used to. And then it's also to, to take time to uh, practice this discipline of discernment and to, uh, to, learn to, to learn to detect not only uh, what our own body is trying to communicate to us, but um, what the Spirit might be trying to say to us as well. Because we are so go, go, go that we very rarely let our bodies rest. And so sometimes if we're not doing that, the Spirit might actually be calling us into rest. Um, if you've been on a, uh, the retreat with me in the past, um, people laugh when I say this, but I talk about... Yeah, Drew was there. I talk about uh, about sleeping prayerfully, and people always kind of laugh when I talk about sleeping prayerfully. But I mean that. I mean, I mean that if if you feel tired and you're in the middle of the day and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to be reading my Bible. Well, maybe not. Maybe you actually need to let your body rest. So, um, I'm really excited about that. Looking forward to it. Um, and there'll be more information. We'll have a date for you guys soon. 
And then uh, if you're not already signed up, I think most of you got this last week. Probably not all of you because not all of you were here, but we have the Trinity class this Saturday. So it's on, It's out of this book. We do have them available for purchase tonight. It's $14. The class goes from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Uh, so nothing too crazy. Pick up the book, though, tonight if you're planning on being in the class so you can read it. It's uh, relatively short. It's about 100 pages. Um, I think just shot or just just over that. So um, grab one of these guys and grab um, the book. If you plan on signing up, then you can still get the book tonight. Just sign up either online from your phone at the computer. I can help you out with that. Or when you get home, that's totally fine. Um, yeah, let's pray. Spirit of God, we want to present ourselves to you tonight. And uh, we are here, disciples of Christ, um, and here to learn from our teacher, from our rabbi. And so we invite you now to speak to us. Uh, we acknowledge, God, that you desire to teach us. We desire, we, and we, we acknowledge that we desire to be taught uh, deep in our spirit. Whether or not our flesh really wants to be here tonight, um, our spirits long for you. Our souls long for you, God. And so would you satisfy us tonight? Would you teach us tonight? Would you give us your word to consume? And so lead us, guide us, and uh, would you speak through me, Lord, and um, teach your kids tonight what you want them to hear, what you want us to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So open up with me to page 224. This is unit 11. We're going to be going over units 11 and 12 tonight, and this is where the workbook ends. Let me remind you as you're turning there that all the things that we've covered thus far, whether it was me or Pastor Phil teaching, uh, and the things that we're covering tonight as well, we want to encourage you to go back through, uh, especially over the next couple of weeks while we have this break, go back through this workbook and work through the exercises if you haven't been doing that already. But go at your leisure. Don't feel like you need to rush through it in a week or two weeks. Um, and it's okay if you don't finish by the next course. It's, you know, just continue to, to plow through this. This has rich material that we've, um, we've missed some of because of our rapid rate at going through it. So we want to encourage you to, to, to uh, take time to go through it again. The, uh, the, the verse, though, for this unit, for unit 11, is First uh, John 1, 7. It's, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And this specific uh, unit is actually all about this idea of fellowship and koinonia. Um, it's, a, it's really at the root of it, what it's going to be talking a lot about is this idea of unity, which excites me because unity is a huge passion um, of mine. It's something that the Lord put on my heart years ago for the church. Um, and it came with this one little simple idea. If the church were truly united as she were called to be, she would be an unstoppable force. And behind that is this idea of mobilizing billions of people who profess faith in Christ and the idea that if, if you mobilize billions of people, it doesn't take very many uh, people to, mobilizing very many people to make a movement happen. If you were to mobilize then billions of people, uh, what would happen in our world? How different would it look if the church were actually going after the mission we've been called into? So flip over to page 226. And uh, in this first paragraph here, uh, last sentence, as the head of your church, Christ himself is guiding and working through your congregation to accomplish 
the will of the Father. Christ being the head, us being his body, um, we, we are actively participating in a global mission that God has called us into. And it's the very mission that uh, really God called Abraham into, which was to bless the nations. And we are blessing the nations through the spread of the gospel as Abraham's seed. That is part of what we are called into as the body of Christ. Um, second paragraph halfway through, it says, In this relationship with Christ as king, you become involved in his mission to reconcile a lost world to God. To be related to Christ is to be on mission with him. You cannot be in relationship with Jesus and not be on mission. Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So what Blackaby is saying here is that literally if you, if you are a Christ follower, you have been called into this mission of evangelizing the world. So whatever that looks like, whether that looks like teaching in churches and teaching people about evangelism, sending evangelists out, or if it's you guys uh, who, who work in the corporate world or who work in schools or who work in whatever, um, it's taking that this gospel message and going into the world, that then being your mission. Uh, under God has the world on his heart. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is John 3.16. God fashioned Christ's first uh, body by the Holy Spirit and placed him in Mary. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus provided for our salvation through his death and resurrection. When Jesus returned to heaven, God fashioned a new body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is uh, this body is the believers God added to the church. Now, I don't want that to be confused with this idea that Christ does not have an actual body, okay? That's why I wanted to read that section. Christ's new body is not to be confused with the actual physical, resurrected, and glorified body of Christ. That would be a heresy called Gnosticism. If we were preaching that we are the body of Christ and that Christ does not have an actual body, then we would technically be preaching Gnosticism. Um, that's not what he's getting at here. It's more symbolic, and, and it's the same language that Scripture speaks of, that we are the body of Christ, the physical manifestation of him upon the earth, but he still being the head. And, and that's not to say that Christ does not have a resurrected, glorified body. We know that he does because we are being transformed and made into his image. And what Paul talks about is that someday we too will be like Christ and we will have these glorified bodies. Though we don't yet know exactly what that'll look like, we know that we've been promised that. There is a resurrection of the dead uh, and, and part of that being that we are given these physical bodies. The uh, last line there on the page, or last sentence, God can impact the world through one church if it adjusts itself to God's activity. And there's this idea here. He talks about this church um, who is, uh, they're, they're this tiny little little thing, 120 people, and they end up doing something incredible simply because they are uh, mindful of, of who God is and what he's doing, uh, and they seek him, and they end up um, partnering globally to make, a, to make a movement happen. They had like, I think it says $26 left in their account. They gathered together one night to pray. At the end of the week, they had $4,000, and they were able to use that money to send missionaries out, uh, and then that missionary started leading hundreds of people a week at a time um, to, to, to Christ. And so there's this idea there being that, that that is what Jesus is wanting to do through us. No matter the size of the church, the amount of money that a church has, that um, he is looking to use his body um, to do what he is doing. And I think that when we remember that, that's humbling in a couple of ways. For one, it reminds us that... Um, that we are small, 
not necessarily in a physical sense, though we could even say that in comparison to other bodies. Um, but it, it's also humbling in, in the regard that God is looking to use his church. Let's not forget the fact that Jesus is the, she- the senior shepherd of any church. Jesus is the senior pastor of any church. It doesn't matter what name is on the outside of it. It doesn't matter what human pastor pastors it. At the end of the day, Jesus is the senior pastor. And by uh, being the senior pastor, he is looking to use his church, regardless of the name on the outside. He's looking to use his church to further his work here in this world. Page 228, the second to last paragraph there, it's just a little blurb. It says, isn't it tragic when we become so self-centered, we enter God's presence and say, oh God, bless me, bless my family, bless my church. The idea here being when we're so focused internally and inwardly that we lose sight of what God wants to do globally and what he wants to do through the churches around us. Uh, I didn't hear back from him, but I called a pastor at a church down the street that I'm friends with. And I said, hey, tell me what you're doing because I want to brag about your church tonight to the group I'm teaching. I just think it would be so beautiful if we, um, as the global church, weren't just talking about the things that we were doing within our own walls, but if we were bragging on our brothers and sisters down the street. Because don't we do that with our families? Uh, we're proud of our siblings a lot of the time. And, and when there's something to be proud of, we like to tell people about it. We get to rejoice. We get to um, to brag on, on somebody. We do that, or I'm sure you guys do that with your spouses as well. Maybe your, uh, your wife is a super good cook or your husband's a super good cook. And you like to brag about that to people because it's something that you take pride in. It's something that you get to enjoy uh, simply how good they are at what they do. And, and we, we, uh, we praise one another through what we do through our acts of service um, and even through little things like that. Uh, when our siblings get good grades or when they have big accomplishments, we'll say, oh my gosh, so check this out. My brother just got hired at this place and it's like he's this really big role and blah, blah, blah. Like we like to do that. We like to praise our family members. I think it would be so beautiful if we were doing that with the churches around us. Just saying like, hey, check out what the church down the street did. Last week, they fed a 1,000 homeless people. How cool is that? Okay, the church on the other side, they're reaching out to prostitutes and porn stars and all that stuff. Like they're in the sex industry. How amazing is that? They're saving, people are being saved through their ministry. So God is at work. He's at work through his church. He is the senior shepherd of his church. Doesn't matter what name is on the outside. God is looking to use his bride. So the summary statements for this section I am a kingdom person, and Christ is my king. To be related to Christ is to be on mission with him. Every congregation is a world mission strategy center, and anytime God has access to our church, he can touch the world through us. There's this interesting idea uh, God reminded me of today. Um, God calls us to care for people globally, right? He calls us to care for people in other parts of the world. And he calls them to care for us. And I think that's profound if we, if we allow ourselves to kind of muse on that for a moment. It's pretty incredible that God loves his church so much that he calls people in America to go to places like South Africa. And he calls people in South Africa to come to places like America to evangelize not just the country, but to also care for the church globally. And, and I think that when we, when we begin to realize how good God is and how gentle he is and how much he loves his church and how he's not just going to let her go unattended, 
that allows us to get outside of ourselves and to begin to do things that bless other people, knowing that it's going to benefit them, even though our money might not be going to us. It might, be, it might seem sacrificial for a church or for us to say, yeah, we're going to pour our money into relief in whatever country because they just had a natural disaster. It can be difficult for churches in America to do that because we're like, well, what about the money that we need to bless the people here in America or the, the money that we need to keep this organization running? And, and I think that that's what's so beautiful, though, is that Christ doesn't let his church go without the care that she needs. He's going to call people from those countries to come over here uh, and to take care of us. Um, and somehow, mysteriously, we all end up working cohesively together because God is sovereign but we work cohesively together then to bless the world around us. And in return, people take care of us. It's a really beautiful relationship that, that Christ has created through his church, which takes us to day two on page 229. It's this idea of koinonia. And koinonia is this Greek word. It's most frequently translated fellowship. And, and the, the real emphasis here, uh, if you look under uh, the, the number one there, it says koinonia or intimate fellowship in the church is based on personal koinonia with God and individual believers. Koinonia with God comes only from a real personal encounter with the living Christ and surrender to him as the absolute Lord of your life. Let's check out First uh, John 1 through, se- 1, 1 through 7 down there under 4. It says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard which uh, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's talking about Jesus. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. This is Koinonia. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to you to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So we see here that fellowship with one another first comes through fellowship with the Father and the Son and in Spirit. Fellowship with one another comes through fellowship with God. And we have to have a tuned fellowship with God to really have a tuned fellowship with one another. But both will affect each other. If we're not fully attuned or properly attuned to the Lord, then we're not going to be attuned to each other. And if we're not attuned to each other, what we're going to see is that it also affects our relationship with the Lord. So uh, the paragraph before fellowship among believers um, about a quarter of the way through, it says, uh, it's a, quoting John seventeen three. this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life means knowing God and experiencing uh, by experience in a real personal way. This is koinonia, fellowship with God. So fellowship with God looks like knowing the person of Christ. It looks like knowing the Father. This is what eternal life is. So true eternal life is having fellowship. It's this all, all kind of an encompassing idea of uh, abiding, of uh, having fellowship, of being unified, um, of being one with Christ. It's this idea that Jesus speaks of right before he goes to the cross, chapters 13 through about 17 of, of John, um, where he talks about 
being one with his church, being one with the, his followers as he and the Father are one. It's this idea of koinonia, a fellowship of having this, this true relationship with Christ. Under, their, uh, under fellowship among believers, our koinonia as believers is with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship is an intimate partnership. It is a sharing of all God is with us and all we are with God. And then Blackbee says, To me, koinonia is the most complete expression of a love relationship with God. When you live in this kind of love relationship with God, you will have the same quality of loving relationship, fellowship with other believers. First John clearly states that your relationship with your Christian brothers and sisters are an expression of your relationship with God. You cannot be in true fellowship with God and out of fellowship with other believers. In his letter, First uh, John, John is really laboring this point, and we're going to read through parts of it here under point five, but we're going to read through parts of it where John consist, cont- consistently is emphasizing this idea of having fellowship with brothers and sisters, and brothers and sisters being the body of believers, not necessarily your flesh and blood brothers and sisters. We're talking about the family of God. So uh, right there, the first one, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Let's just pause there. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. There's deception here. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. Now, thinking back to chapter 1, the verses that we just read, it talks about how God is light in him. There is no darkness. So for those who hate their brother, they're still living in the darkness. They're not actually walking in the true light, the light of God. The next one, this is how we know we are the children of God or who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who who does not love his brother. These are heavy words (laughs) because there are people in the church and maybe people sitting in the room that you are totally annoyed with, uh, who who you are not in fellowship with. Um. I don't know that we would go as far as to say hatred, but we might not say hatred because we don't want to admit to that, because we don't want to embrace the idea that we hate a brother or sister. But if we're honest with ourselves, there might be that in our hearts. And Scripture calls us to be reconciled to one another. But it's a sobering thing to think about that that what John would say is that, look, if you hate your brother, then you're a child of the devil because hatred is not of God. So for there to be hatred in your heart, that means that you're walking in the darkness, and if you're walking in the darkness, you're not a child of the light, and if you're not a child of the light, you're not a child of the God. Now, I don't think that what he's saying here to the church, to the, the those who would have been reading this letter uh, in the first century or here in the 21st century, I don't think that he's saying literally uh, you've lost your salvation if you're angry with somebody. That's not what he's saying. He's not talking about anger. Um, I don't think that he's saying that you, you're, and I don't even believe that you can lose your salvation, but I don't think that he is saying um, that you're literally a child of the devil, but perhaps what he's actually trying to get at here is you are living as a child of the devil because you hate your brother. Uh, living as a child of the light looks like loving. So the next one down there, um, the third, third quote, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. 
This is echoing Jesus's words where Jesus said, basically he identified hatred as, as the new murder. Um, to think again, these are, these are heavy words. This is all what John is laboring in this letter of first John. He's, he's sure he's addressing other things too. He's actually addressing Gnosticism, the heresy I mentioned earlier, but he is belaboring this point of, of loving one another, being unified in love towards one another. And that if we are not doing that, it's as if we have murdered our brother because when we hate one another, we kill people in our hearts. We, to, to think, think of it this way, to actually hate somebody is to, uh, to really wish or to not care if they existed or not. It's as if to say it would be better if this person did not exist in my life, if they were not a part of my life. And this is, of course, the antithesis of love because what love does is, is it gives life. Uh, that's what the Father's love has done for us. Yeah, absolutely. We are called certainly to love them. And this idea too of, um, you know, Jew, Jews being a race for one, but then also uh, a faith, a belief in that, yes, uh, I, I believe too that the Jews will come to see Jesus as the Messiah in the end times. Um, and specifically the Jews who are living through the tribulation period.
Good thoughts. Let's see. Did we read three or four of those? I think three. So let's go ahead and read the fourth one. It's like the, the middle one right there. This is how we know. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? If Christ is our model, if Christ literally gave everything and we see a brother or sister starving, dying, in need, and we aren't moved to give or aren't moved to care in some capacity, then it begs this question of like, well, how can the love of God be in us then? If we're not broken over the things that breaks God's heart, if we're not moved by the things that moves God's heart, if we're not compassionate in the same way that the Father's heart is compassionate, then it begs the question of, is the love of God in us? Now, there are times and seasons where we'll go through trials where we might not have that capacity. Uh, Maybe our sin prevents us from doing that, or maybe there's actually something that God is taking us through. Uh, or some sort of spiritual warfare that we're experiencing that shuts off part of our heart for a time to be able to experience that. We're not talking about that. That's something different. This is this is more of a um, a philosophical question, so to speak, of like in theory. Then how can how can the love of God exist in a person if they are not moved by the things that move God's heart? If they're supposed to be His children, then shouldn't their heart reflect their their Father? So the next one, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. The next one, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot... Excuse me, I'm getting over a cold. (coughs) Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This is how we know... What, uh, that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands.
Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I mean, thinking simply about the fact that it's not good that Adam is alone in the garden, uh, that he doesn't have anybody of his species with him. Um, and it says that he's walking with God. Now, whether that is a physical, literal walking or uh, the spiritual walk, or if it's an internal dwelling that um, uh, becomes an external thing once he sins, there is an acknowledgement that it's not good that Adam is alone. We are created and wired. And for anybody who then tries to downplay human relationships and to say, oh, no, you just need God. You just need to be right with God. God would disagree with that because he did. He did in, in Genesis. We're talking about the Edenic state where there was no sin. There is only perfection and union with God. And God says that's not enough. They need they need each other to be fully human. They need each other to really understand who I am. They need each other to, to be fully alive. Um, that's a crazy thought that God would say, um, look, no, although Adam has me, he needs somebody who's also like him and being created in his image. We then compliment each other. We complete, we fulfill the image of God on one another, uh, specifically looking around this room, you know, males and females. That is, we are created for that to complete the image of God on one another females who pick up his maternal qualities, uh, his feminine qualities, God's feminine qualities, males who pick up God's uh, masculine, his, his paternal qualities, and being able to then reflect that to one another, that is being fully alive, being fully human. Um, I, I was super convicted by this passage um, several years ago when I was working at my old job before coming on staff here. Uh, I found it super difficult to love the guys that I worked with. I was the only Christian in my workplace, and um, and I was just so sickened by the things that the guys would talk about and that they would joke about, and uh, I hated being in this environment. And I remember having a conversation with my friend, my friend Bree, and she said, Nathan, it sounds like it's really hard for you to love your coworkers. And I was actually proud about this, and I said, yeah, it really is. They're just so disgusting. They just really make me upset and blah, blah. Uh and then I and then I think it was very shortly after that I started reading First John and um, and while those guys weren't my brothers they weren't my spiritual brothers uh, I just felt so convicted by this where God said Nathan you love me right and I was like well yeah and he said then should it be hard for you to love those who I've created should it be hard for you to love your coworkers um, and just feeling so convicted by that and and repenting of that like. God totally changed my heart then for my um, these atheists basically that I was working with and guys of other religions as well, but uh, where my heart was converted even just just to love them um, and to desire to love them and to begin to pray for them instead of curse them in my heart. So I think that that is also an application. That's not what the text is talking about specifically, but certainly an application that we can take then of these people, the people around us, those who don't know Christ, though their behaviors, uh, the things that they say, the things that they do, the things that they think about, what they share with you, though that may potentially disgust you, um, we are we are still called to love them and perhaps even them, not necessarily the most, but to, to exhibit love towards them the most um, in order to give them a taste of uh, just a picture of God's love for them as well. 
that's what you see, so that's what you then do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, that's a great challenge to the church. Um, in terms of extending grace towards one another is to take a look first at, well, what has this person gone through? Because it's so easy for us to compare people to us. Um, it's so easy. In fact, one of the markers of pride is anytime that, you, anytime that you've had the thought, uh, I don't know why that person struggles with that. They say they're a Christian. It's not hard for me, so why is it hard for them? That is a surefire sign of pride. Um, so allow that to be a, something that kind of gauges that in your heart. Um, but if we took a moment to observe and to think more deeply about what might my brother or sister sitting next to me in church be going through, like, man, I wish that we had that gauge where we could just read and see people's stories and know each other's stuff. Because first off, I believe that we're actually, um, I believe that if we if we lived out this love we're talking about, it would be safe to do that. It's not safe because we're too broken to handle other people's stuff. Now, if we are willing to accept our own things, then we can accept other people's brokenness. But uh, as we begin to do that, as we begin to say like, hey, you're broken, I'm broken too. We get to, w- we are walking out uh, in our, our sanctification together. When we begin to acknowledge that, then it gives us the capacity to love. And, and it reminds us, wow, this person is struggling with all this stuff and they, they're literally going through hell on earth right now because of everything that they're experiencing in their family and their, their, the brokenness, the divorce that they're going through, their kids that hate them for the divorce. And the list probably goes on and on and on. But so often we feel the tendency to, well, now I'm at church, I got to put on a, a small face, smiley face and say I'm good and, uh, and pretend like everything is okay. And it's just a bunch of people who are unknown that are walking around not feeling loved. I think that if we were to embrace our own baggage and to own it and to be willing to admit I am broken and in need of a savior, then we'd be able to do that with other people and extend a lot more grace and love. Yeah. Yeah, because he's he's allowing us to see his heart and his heart for people. Um, and when we begin to really grasp the Father's heart for people and, and actually understand it, it's going to conflict with things in ourselves. It's going to conflict with our families of origin. It's going to conflict with even theology that we've learned in the past. I believe when we actually begin to see the true Father heart of God and we realize that, like how... 
man, how many times have you heard a sermon? And I'm not talking about here. Uh, I'm talking about just throughout your lifetime. How many times have you heard sermons that really just beat the sheep into submission or into obedience instead of love them into obedience? Um, I'm huge on the Father's grace. I'm huge on the Father's love. He does chastise us and convict us, but he does not condemn us. He does not look at our sin and beat us over the head with it and say, look at what you've done. Go, th- go, go to your room and think about what you've done and don't come out until you've figured it out. You, like That is not the Father's heart. The Father's heart is, let me show you how this is hurting you because I don't want you to do this anymore. For these reasons, look at how it's damaged you. Uh, and, and then that it's his love then that compels us to change, that even puts the desire in our heart to change. As we see our sin, when there's true conviction, there's also joy because then it becomes our joy to be aware and to realize our sin and to, it becomes our desire then to change. Well, you don't have intimacy with them, yeah. Absolutely, and and in fact, why don't we take a second to do this? Here we are talking about it. Why don't we just practice this? Five minutes. This is not our break. Break's not for another 20. Uh, let's take five minutes and um, share with somebody in the room some of your brokenness. Now, I know that you're like, whoa, no way. Um, Here's what I want you to do. It might be. That's okay. Well, that might be okay. And maybe, maybe it's the beginning of a longer conversation that you have with somebody. But here's what I want you to do. As you listen to this person's story, you're not going to tell them to do differently, to think differently, to behave differently. You're not going to tell them. Uh, th- there is no rebuke here. There is no uh, condemnation. I just want you to receive this person's story as a gift, which means you don't get to give it back to them, which means you don't get to ridicule it. I simply want you to receive it as a gift. Okay? Hold this person. Hold their story gently. They're choosing to share whatever they're choosing to share with you because they think that you can be trusted with it. And that's an honor. And then af- afterwards, and this might sound cheesy because it'll be forced, quote unquote, but thank the person for being vulnerable with you. So take a minute right now. I'm going to give you literally one minute. You're going to pray about what the Lord might want you to share. Okay. Ask the Lord what that would be. 
and then I'll close this in prayer, and then I want you to find somebody in the room, uh, preferably that you don't know, to share part of your story with, part of your brokenness. Father, would you give us courage and boldness to share our stories? And would you give us gentleness to hold them? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you may have identified somebody as, before you do it, before you share, let me set the tone, okay? Um, by being vulnerable and honest with you guys, sharing, sharing something, part of my brokenness. Um, God has been working with me for the last probably three years just with a sense of awareness uh, of my deep, deep insecurity uh to be loved and desired and to experience that um i i fear being alone i fear ending up alone i fear not getting married uh and while that's not something that creates a ton of anxiety it's something that um that does come to mind quite frequently uh just this idea of like will anybody ever want to be with me will anybody find me worth it um and i've done a lot of work with god to identify where some of that comes from, from my past, from people who were mean to me in school, uh, and even in my parenting, or, you know, my parents did a wonderful job, but being able to link some things back to that. Um, and <coughs> most of us are messed up because of our parents. Uh, most of us are messed up because of our siblings. It's our family of origin, oftentimes, that has hurt us the most. And so that might be part of your story tonight. But um, yeah, just my, my insecurity, it's still something that I'm working through of longing to be desired, longing to be loved um, and, and having a, a, a felt deep need for that. And there is a need, but that that oftentimes is not uh, fulfilled by God, that I look to other people, um, to other places for that to be met. So let that be an example um, for what your stories might sound like.
if you haven't switched yet, go ahead and wrap up your story so the other person has time to share. All right, try to start wrapping up your stories if you can.
I'm going to give you one more minute. Thirty more seconds. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go ahead and cut you guys off there. Again, maybe this is a longer conversation for another time, and hopefully hopefully it really is that. Um, now, as you guys wrap up your conversations, I, I'd love to hear from you, but I also have a couple of ideas of what that was probably like. I would imagine that for some it was uh, it was difficult probably to listen without interjecting. I would imagine that, that some of you, either you did interject or you wanted to. Um, and uh, allow that to be some sort of a mirror. I'm not going to tell you what mirror exactly that is, but maybe talk to the Lord about what that may have been <coughs> coming up. And then I'm going to encourage you that the next time you listen to somebody's story, simply to listen and receive it fully as a gift, as an entire package, as a complete package beforehand not trying to guilt or shame anybody who may have interrupted the story. Maybe you were simply trying to relate and let that person know that, Oh, I get that. I've been there before too. Um, but simply to give that person, uh, the, the full attention I, I should have said at the beginning and I'm sorry, I didn't, but, um, but I would imagine that for some of you now, uh, you are, you, you probably are tempted to, to correct at some point or to try to, um, console at some point um, and that's an okay tension to feel it's very normal because we oftentimes want to fix people and it's a different experience to simply hold a person where they are um, it's it can feel actually very foreign a very foreign experience to simply hold a person where they are without trying to give them advice or trying to fix them but when we do that we do give an, uh, each other an experience of hey you are loved in this place with this brokenness as you are uh, and then we become what's li- what's called an object relation for God's love to that person. So uh, I'm wondering, though, what was that like? If if one of you would mind, wouldn't mind sharing, or two of you wouldn't mind sharing. I'm curious to know. Uh, I'm curious to know if it was an encouraging experience, if it was an embarrassing experience, if it was a combination of the two. What was this like, Ted?
That's great. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Awesome. <laughs> we knew that. He's from Canada. <laughs> uh, that does not have to be your experience, mind you. Um, it, you you may... Oh, I meant, I meant it, might, it might not have been positive, and that's okay. Uh, and part of that is being held in the place that you're in. So um, anybody else want to share or, or even anybody have uh, an opposite experience? Yeah, I think about, um, and really our relationships are meant to be types or images of our relationship with the Lord, right? I mean, again, Adam and Eve, not fully human unless they're together, not fully reflecting God's image unless they're together. Um, and I think about the people who have seen me like at my worst, at my grossest, and, and that's somebody like my mom or like my dad. And I'm thinking of me as like a little kid, you know, with like snot running out my nose, puking in the toilet or whatever. And like they were there to, to not only clean me up, but to clean up the mess that I had made and, and then to like put me back in bed and to make me soup and to bring me medicine and water and whatever I needed. Uh, and literally like, I have no idea what I look like in those days as a little kid who is sick, but like that probably being one of the grossest feelings when you're like, <laughs> everything's just, uh, you know, um, and to be, to be cared about in that way. Uh, like I said, I had wonderful, wonderful parents and not everybody does. And I acknowledge that. Um, but for me to be able to look back on experiences like that and be like, wow, you literally saw me at my grossest, like things coming out of my body that you probably didn't want to see. And, and yet you love me. Um, I have a classmate in my program, uh, and she gave birth, uh, probably like nine months ago, but sh while she was pregnant, we went on a retreat for, for school and we had to wash each other's feet. 
now because she was pregnant, um, she couldn't take medicines uh, because she didn't want to affect the pregnancy, and she had a uh, bad foot fungus. And so, you know, it comes time she finds out we're washing each other's feet, and she is just humiliated that she has to take her shoes off um, because there's nothing she could do about it. She got this infection, and then she was pregnant. Like she couldn't just go and start taking medicine for the, for the sake of the baby. And she was so embarrassed and didn't want to do it. And I think she was even reluctant if I remember correctly. Um, and yet she had her feet washed. She took her shoes off and exposed this grossest part of herself, this part of herself that she hated, that she literally kept covered with her shoes and with her socks and never wanted anybody to touch. I don't even think she would let her husband touch her feet because she was so disgusted with the way that her feet looked. And this person who washed her feet, she she described it as they took their time washing and rubbing and going in between the toes and just were so careful and so gentle with her and like would would rub her feet as they were washing. And she as as this was happening to her, she's experiencing the humiliation. And then God spoke to her and said, I see the dirtiest, grossest parts of you and I love you. And she experienced such love by having the, you know, the, the part of her that she hated the most, this nasty foot fungus uh, exposed and then but cared for by another person. She experienced deep, deep love by, uh, by going through this experience. And what John thirteen thirty five talks about is Jesus says, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And there is such truth to that. And I, my hope from doing this exercise, it was very spontaneous. It's just what I sense the Lord saying. And I'm so glad. I'm so proud of you guys actually for doing this because it's not easy uh, to just open up to a stranger or maybe to an, a, you know somebody that you kind of know but aren't too close with. So I'm really proud of you guys for being willing to do this and for participating in this. And my hope for you is that this was an experience where um, it left you feeling both known and loved. Uh, it's easy for us to have one without the other. It's easy for us to feel loved but not really be known. Um, you may have experienced that in your home growing up where you had a, a parent who provided for you but didn't know anything about you on the inside. Um, they may have loved you. They may have loved you well, but they didn't know you, and that's a lonely existence. And you, Vice versa, you may have had people who who have known you throughout your entire life and known the dirt about you, the gross things, and not experienced love. And that's one of the greatest forms of rejection. So my hope for you tonight is that you have been met with acceptance, that you've been met with intimacy as you've opened up, as you've shared with one another uh, and allowed yourself to be known that you've also been loved in that place. So with that, let's go ahead and break. Um, and we will come back. If you look at the clock, it says 7.50. So we will be back in here. I'll be talking at 8.00. I promise.